Hi everyone, post-production Bev here with a few notes before we jump into today's episode. First, Annabelle Sabalis, our guest today, recently defended her PhD, so she's now Dr. Sabalis rather than a PhD candidate. Yay, Dr. Sabalis! Second, Dr. Sabalis comes from Ryerson University, which is currently going through a name change. As of September 10th, 2021, which is when I'm recording this, Ryerson has been known recently as X University until the new name is released. And according to CTV News Toronto, the name change comes after growing calls to examine the legacy of Egerton Ryerson, who was an architect of Canada's residential school system, which separated 150,000 Indigenous children from their families. Finally, this episode features a new segment. I asked my friend Megan Riley to listen to my interview with Dr. Sabalis and comment on her own lived experience with ADHD. I am so excited about both of these conversations and can't wait for you to hear them. Enjoy the show! Hey there! I'm your friend Bev, host of Stop Psychoanalyzing Me, a podcast about mental health. I interview experts and ask questions about mental disorders that all of us might be curious about. Come join me. On today's episode is Annabelle Sabalis. Annabelle is a doctoral candidate in the psychological science program at Ryerson University in Toronto. Her research investigates mental health in children and youth with a specific focus on ADHD and learning disabilities. She is a collaborator with community mental health agencies, including the Child Development Institute in Toronto, and works with them to investigate the effectiveness of their therapeutic treatment programs for youth. Annabelle, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. What exactly is ADHD? So ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and it's a disorder that is characterized by presence of either inattention symptoms or hyperactivity symptoms or both. And when I say inattention symptoms, I mean things like really chronic pervasive difficulty sustaining attention on a task, being really distractible, trouble paying attention to details, making lots of mistakes. The other cluster of symptoms, which we call hyperactivity and impulsivity symptoms, refer to things like being constantly fidgety, having trouble sitting still, trouble being quiet, or holding yourself back from interrupting, things like that. So when you have ADHD, you have predominantly inattentive symptoms, or predominantly hyperactive impulsive symptoms, or a combination of both. Okay, so it sounds like ADHD can actually look quite different depending on the person with it. Maybe they primarily have, I think you called it a cluster, maybe they primarily have one cluster of symptoms, or the other, or maybe a mix. And I'm wondering, does that have to do with like level of severity, maybe some people have less severe symptoms because they only mostly have symptoms in one cluster, or does that not have anything to do with severity? No, it certainly needs to be a certain level of severity to even reach the criteria to be diagnosed. That's why the three clusters that we talked about map onto the three different subtypes of ADHD. 
And they're named in a way that reflects that it's not that you only have that cluster, it's that you predominantly have that cluster of symptoms. So the three subtypes are predominantly inattentive subtype, predominantly hyperactive, impulsive, or combined. So it might mean that maybe most of your symptoms fall within one of those categories, say the inattention category, but you also present with symptoms from another cluster. Okay, that's interesting. I actually didn't know that there were subtypes of ADHD, but that actually makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And when you say subtypes and you say criteria, I imagine you're talking about the DSM-5, which has come up in several episodes already. But essentially, the DSM-5 is our big book of mental disorders that psychiatrists or psychologists diagnose from. Absolutely. All, yeah, and it those has are all the, the criteria the in there. The criteria we're talking about. Yep. Okay. So a lot of times I've heard folks say that they have ADD. Is that the same thing as ADHD? Mm-hmm. So ADD stands for Attention Deficit Disorder, and it's simply just an outdated term for ADHD. But it was really commonly used, so sometimes it still shows up when people talk about it. It was the formal name of the disorder in the 80s. But as we learn more about disorders, sometimes the names of them change or the way we classify them changes. Another ADHD-specific example is that prior to 2013, in an earlier version of the DSM, ADHD was considered a disruptive behavior disorder, which is a type of disorder characterized by pretty substantial behavioral problems. And then since 2013, we now consider ADHD a neurodevelopmental disorder, which means that we recognize that ADHD is a result of some complications in brain development as we grow or even before we're born. So over time, we learn more about disorders through research, and sometimes that results in changing the name or changing how we categorize that disorder. I didn't know that ADD was sort of a vestige of previous times. Mm-hmm. People definitely still say it pretty commonly, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And you definitely hear it on TV shows or in media. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What are some lesser known ADHD symptoms? You're kind of painting a picture of maybe someone who has difficulties paying attention someone who might have difficulties with not maybe being impulsive. But what are some of those symptoms that might slip under the radar? One that I study a lot is social challenges. So if you think about having a social interaction or trying to make a friend, we need to do so many things at once. We need to pay attention during conversations. We need to remember to smile or nod We need to tune out background noise and focus on our friend. We have to inhibit ourselves from blurting things out or interrupting inappropriately. And all of these social skills rely on attention and controlling impulses. So for some people with ADHD, that's difficult and they can end up having trouble making friends or forming relationships or forming high quality relationships. So social challenges is definitely a big one. And another lesser known symptom can be hyperfocusing. It's kind of ironic, but people with ADHD can sometimes get really intensely fixated on an activity and tune everything else out. This usually happens if the activity is something that's really stimulating and provides a lot of instant gratification. A really common example is video games. 
And this happens because someone with ADHD isn't able to kind of flip the off switch and shift their attention the way that most of us would. If you get really engaged, it's actually hard to stop focusing on something. So that's definitely lesser known because it sort of goes against all of the things that we just mentioned, right? The inattention. One thing I've heard a lot about is that there's a gender gap in ADHD. Can you speak to that? What do folks mean when they say that? Absolutely. This is one of my favorite topics. ADHD is far more common in males. Some research shows that the ratio of males to females is three to one, and some research suggests it's as high as nine to one. So a pretty significant gender gap. And we're not exactly sure why this is, but we do know that girls are far likelier to display that inattentive subtype of ADHD that we talked about, which can be a lot more subtle and tricky to identify and diagnose. Often it's mistaken for shyness, and it likely also ties into the fact that girls and women are socialized to be quieter and better behaved than boys. It's easier to spot if a child is constantly running around being overly excitable and all over the place versus a child that is more reserved and detached. And it's certainly a generalization, but girls tend to be the latter, so it it gets missed more often. Ultimately, that gender gap is probably due to many different factors. It might reflect that it's harder to diagnose in females or... Like we mentioned, the symptoms often present a little differently in males, or that research historically has focused more on males as well. And you mentioned that the ratio could be something from three to one or nine to one with males being diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And that begs the question, do you think ADHD is being overdiagnosed? That's a really interesting question. You know, my father was a psychiatrist who practiced for over 35 years, and he specialized in ADHD. And in fact, he was one of the the foremost experts on ADHD in the province. And his perception, which I trust very much, was that ADHD is often overdiagnosed in the wrong people and underdiagnosed in the right people. So an example is, sadly, it's the case that sometimes a child, because it's often diagnosed in childhood maybe isn't performing well in school, maybe they're really high energy and rowdy, and the parent just takes them in for a diagnosis like, I can't handle this kid, make them behave better, medicate them, put them in therapy, whatever. And that may lead to more diagnoses. There's also the flip side where in some kids, and again, especially girls, the ADHD symptoms fly under the radar because they just cause fewer problems for teachers, for parents and families. And these kids are less likely to be referred to a clinician for a diagnosis. And it can also be tricky because the symptoms of ADHD overlap quite a bit with many other disorders. So a lot of ADHD symptoms are also present in or are mistaken for learning disabilities or 
externalizing disorders. So it's tricky and it takes a lot of time and knowledge for someone to accurately note what symptoms are occurring and really tease apart what is going on and if it's specific to ADHD. Mm -hmm. What's an externalizing disorder? An externalizing disorder is one that's characterized by overt symptoms like aggression. Some examples are the behavior disorders that I mentioned previously that are associated with significant behavior challenges, oppositional behavior to authority or parents, aggression, that sort of thing. Okay. And you're saying that sometimes kids will have these behavioral problems and then they'll be given an ADHD diagnosis, maybe even treated with medication. And it might not actually be the case that they have this neurodevelopmental disorder. That absolutely does happen, probably more often than anyone would like to admit. Oh my gosh. Okay. That's really interesting. And you mentioned too that ADHD can look like other disorders as well. And, you know, as you were talking, you were mentioning these inattentive symptoms, maybe difficulties concentrating and how this can almost look like shyness in children or, or anxiety, but it's actually this inattentive sort of neurodevelopmental problem. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm wondering... How can we tease apart something like anxiety in a child and ADHD, which is this more has this more neurodevelopmental origin? The sort of core piece of ADHD, that difficulty paying attention, is a symptom that's common to so many disorders. It's often present in depression or anxiety. PTSD, all of those can affect our ability to pay attention. And what sets ADHD apart or any mental disorder is that an individual needs to present with all criteria of a disorder. So again, it goes back to the list that is in the DSM there. And it's important to remember too that we are all on a continuum. We all have trouble paying attention sometimes, and that's definitely challenging, but it, it can be normal. So if someone is concerned that they're displaying multiple symptoms of ADHD and that it's been a really pervasive problem since childhood, they've noted this over years of their life, that's when it's time to talk to your doctor and ask for a referral to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Speaking of, can you manage ADHD without medication? Yep. Well, medication in combination with behavioral therapy is known to be the most effective treatment for ADHD, but you absolutely can manage it without medication. Behavioral therapy is pretty common, and this can include lots of things. There's a big focus on this for children especially. Another thing that's known to help improve ADHD symptoms is actually exercise. It's a natural way to boost levels of neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine. So in that way, it actually acts similarly to medication by boosting those in your brain. Plus, it provides, as we know, uh, the whole host of other benefits like boosting mood and physical health benefits. So that's a great option. Something that I deal with a lot in my work is the emotional and behavioral challenges that can be part of the broader picture of ADHD. Having any mental disorder is hard. And what we see a lot is the intense 
pain and frustration and sadness that comes with not being able to control your mind and your body in the way that you'd like. In my research, I see kids all the time that know they have trouble behaving or controlling themselves, and they're disappointed in themselves. They're angry at themselves for something that isn't their fault. I've had kids say to me that they hate themselves because of this, and that's really heartbreaking. And I bring this up because part of managing ADHD is managing those emotions and working through them. And that is something that no medication is going to do. So for that reason, a lot of the behavioral treatments that I've studied focus a lot on forms of self-compassion. So one example is mindfulness meditation, and that's a type of meditation that not only helps calm the body and mind and cultivate the ability to focus, which is really beneficial for ADHD, but also teaches users to practice acceptance and non-judgment of yourself. And those skills are really, really important for everyone, but especially for people that might struggle with that, which is really common in ADHD. Mm, Wow. I never really thought about it in that way, how just difficult it would be to live with something like this, especially as a child and noticing how different you are from your peers. It it sounds incredibly isolating. Yeah, I imagine it really, really is. And that's heartbreaking to hear. Mm -hmm. So I know your work is primarily with children. I'm wondering if you can speak to how does ADHD differ in adults versus in children? Mm -hmm. So ADHD is often spoken of as if it is a childhood-specific disorder, but it's it's not. My own research, as you said, focuses on children and youth. So some of my examples may be from that realm, but in the majority of cases, some or all ADHD symptoms persist into adulthood. And the symptoms themselves are the same, but sometimes the presentation in adults is a little more subtle because at that point, you've been living with these challenges for years and have likely developed some compensatory mechanisms that allow you to function in the world. So in adults, ADHD can manifest as always being late, being poorly organized at work, maybe starting a million different side projects, but then giving them up quickly, forgetting important dates, difficulty prioritizing things properly. And again, a lot of these things sound like wow, I do that all the time. Do I have ADHD? (laughs) And that speaks to the fact that ADHD is a disorder with so much nuance, and it really can take a skilled clinician to make a proper diagnosis. So again, just having some of these symptoms is not enough to qualify for a full diagnosis of ADHD. You would need to do more than just display some of these traits some of the time. mentioned that ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder and that makes me wonder about other disorders like autism. Is there a significant difference between these two disorders? Do folks with ADHD tend to have autism as well? Is there any connection between these? 
Well, ADHD can share some common features with autism spectrum disorder, ASD. Individuals with ASD may show difficulties with attention. That hyperfocus piece that we were talking about, they may show similar self-regulation challenges. But in autism specifically, there are symptoms that are not present in ADHD. For example, fixation on restricted and repetitive patterns of behavior. Also in in ASD, one's social interactions are more significantly impaired and may go down to deficits in very basic social skills like eye contact or body language or sometimes even not being able to communicate verbally, whereas those challenges are not always present in ADHD. So there are definitely similar features, but they are two distinct disorders. Okay. And and could you be diagnosed with both? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So maybe that's another piece clinicians sometimes have to look at when making these very difficult diagnoses that seem to really impact the way, at least the way kids see themselves or the way adults might see themselves across the lifespan. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that there are a lot of symptoms that overlap between ADHD and these other disorders. So if if you meet criteria for one disorder, you're already part of the way there for another. It can be really, really challenging when looking at comorbid cases. What do we do if we do have an ADHD diagnosis? You mentioned medication and behavioral treatment, but are there any other ways of supporting oneself with a diagnosis like ADHD? Hmm. Well, as I mentioned, the most common and also most effective treatment is pharmacological. So the most common and effective medication is a class of drugs that are called stimulants. And these include ones that you might have heard of like Adderall or Ritalin, but medication use is, is not for everyone. Some people experience really challenging side effects. Some feel a lot of stigma There's also generally very low compliance rates of people taking their medication on a regular basis. And some people just don't like how medication makes them feel, and that's okay. The most effective treatment is one that works for you. There is some research that omega-3 fatty acids, which are usually taken in the form of fish oil, can help with ADHD symptoms. And I believe zinc is another supplement that has shown some efficacy in helping with ADHD symptoms. In research, these are often looked at in combination with more formal medication, though. And ultimately, the treatment combination that has shown the most efficacy is stimulant medication in combination with behavioral therapy. What is behavioral therapy? Well, behavioral therapy can include lots of things. Often it's instituted at a young age in childhood. Often it includes behavioral modification, so fostering skills like inhibition and focus. Often there will be training based on kind of a reward system or a token economy, it's often called. So like, well, if you sit and complete this worksheet, then you get a sticker, that sort of thing. Behavioral therapy very often also includes a parent training portion that trains parents to help shape their children's behavior in a similar way. And that's known to be very effective parent training. 
Annabelle, I'm really interested in how ADHD arises. It seems like you hear folks talk about ADHD running in their families. So maybe there's a genetic component, but then you also hear that every so often a family has a child with ADHD and they're completely bamboozled on sort of where this came from. And so I'm wondering if you can speak to what the research shows about how ADHD arises in folks. Mm -hmm. So we know that ADHD is neurodevelopmental in origin, which again means that it arises from some differences in development of the brain, either when we are in the womb or as we are growing when we're young. And we do know that ADHD is highly genetic. We're not sure exactly how much, but it's definitely a significant amount. Like almost every disorder, our best understanding is that it's likely a combination of these genetic and biological factors mixed with some environmental factors that ultimately leads to development of ADHD. Mm-hmm. Environmental factors, meaning? Meaning the family that you grow up in, levels of parental warmth and how you interact with your parents, temperamental differences. There are even studies that look at things like nutrition or access to certain types of education I imagine, too, that perhaps these environmental factors just exacerbate or make worse underlying biological symptoms. Absolutely. We look at it in terms of the idea of risk factors. So just because something is present doesn't mean it will lead to disorder, but it means that there's maybe a higher propensity that it will. And especially when a lot of these different pieces come together in combination, that is when risk is highest. If I know someone with ADHD, how can I best support them as a friend or family member? That is such a great question, and it's a really thoughtful one. So if someone is thinking that already shows the kind of interest and compassion that is going to be so important in that process, I think the most important thing you can do is give someone patience, acceptance, and an open space to be themselves and share the frustrations and the challenges that they have. Education is also so important. There are fantastic books out there on what it is like to live with ADHD, how you can best support loved ones in your life with ADHD. A really famous one is called Driven to Distraction by Hallowell and Rady, or another one is Smart But Scattered by Peg Dawson. I've heard her speak before, and she is just fantastic. Similarly, if you're in a romantic relationship with someone with ADHD, that can be really challenging, so I'd encourage you to read books about that specific topic. And encouraging your loved one to seek help if they need it and to not feel ashamed or conflicted or stigmatized about seeking that help is really important. Wow. And those genuinely seem like practical ways to fight some of the stigma that Mm -hmm. some folks might face around having this disorder. All right. We're going to wrap up now. But before we do, I'm wondering, Annabelle, do you have any 
key takeaways that you'd like our audience to walk away with today? Yeah, I think it all centers around that compassion piece for others and for yourself. Self-stigma is a an incredibly difficult, arguably the most difficult type of stigma. It's incredibly challenging to live with ADHD. You are a warrior every day if you do it. And so you deserve self-compassion and self-acceptance and non-judgment. So trying to cultivate that maybe through therapy or through mindfulness or through journaling, but having that self-kindness in your corner is one of the most helpful things. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. All right, and as promised, here is my interview with Megan Riley, who experiences ADHD. All right, so I'm really excited because for the first time on the show, we have a person who experiences the topic that we are discussing on the show today. And so, Megan, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Tell our listeners a little more about you. Oh, thank you so much, Bev. Thank you for inviting me. I am a friend of Bev's. Uh, I met Bev several years ago before she went off to start her, uh, is it your master's, Bev, that you did? PhD. Your PhD, PhD, pardon me, Dr. Uh, Bev's last name. (laughs) Uh, And in any event, uh, uh, yeah, I... uh, (laughs) I am a local Winnipeg, I guess, comedian is how I met Bev, but also a lawyer, a single mother of two person, human. Uh, and I guess Bev probably knows I have ADHD because in my stand-up material, I talk quite a bit about it. And uh, so, and Bev and I, we did, we didn't do a show. Were you in that show, Flesh Colored Crayons? I don't know. In any event, I'm a fan of Bev. Bev's also a very talented actress. Can you tell that I have ADHD, Bev? I'm going off topic. In any event, Bev, I'm Megan Riley, and I am uh, a human that you know here in Winnipeg who has ADHD is happy to talk about it. Thank you for that introduction. And I just add, you listen to Dr. Sibelis's portion of the episode on ADHD. And my first thought for you, or my first question for you rather was, what did you think of it? Did it match your experience? Did anything arise in you that you disagreed with? How was it for you? Well, uh, first of all, it was great. And she, she knows her stuff. I've read extensively about ADHD. I, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 31 years old, I think it was. And so uh, uh, when I was diagnosed and around that time, I did a ton of reading. So when she was speaking, she really she really knows her stuff. And it rang true for my experience. She didn't talk about every aspect of it, but you know the fact that there are three main types uh, combined, or sorry, rather I should say do it the other way around, <laughs> hyperactive, inattentive, or combined, the fact that uh, there's more males and females diagnosed, the fact that it's hereditary. Um, she talked a lot about, um, what else did she talk about that I agreed with and thought was interesting. I basically, the way she talked about it as a spectrum disorder. So a lot of people uh, talk about, you know, oh, I must have ADHD because I'm distracted. What makes it a disorder is the 
frequency and severity of the symptoms and the way they impact you. So, so yeah, I like what you had to say. And I happen to be one of those weird females that's primarily hyperactive. Most of my behaviors are hyperactive. So uh, most of the reading about females is like, they're the inattentive type staring out the window. That's not the type I am. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I know she was great. What it brought up in me was, I, I'm glad to see, I, I'm glad you're doing this show. I'm glad that there's more known because generally it used to be the case for kids with ADHD if they were undiagnosed like I was there'd often be a feeling of shame attached because no matter how hard you would try, you couldn't control your symptoms. Certainly that was my experience. And, you know, sometimes that would result in uh, poor self-esteem and a child, you know, kind of becoming badly behaved because that's sort of what's thought of them. This person's always at you. They start to sort of fill that role. And sometimes, i.e. in my case, <laughs> they sort of become a class clown because I knew I was going to have outbursts. I'm sure this is such a long answer. I'm going to wrap it up. And uh, I knew they had to be palatable. I wanted them to be palatable. I desperately wanted to be liked. And yet it, I knew uh, I kept interrupting. I still keep interrupting. <laughs> so uh, uh, that's how I started being funny, I think, because I really didn't want to have the rebuke that you naturally get when you are calling out in class out of turns, et cetera. So, yeah. Oh, wait, one more thing. And she also talked about hyperfocus. And for me, that's a really important piece of the puzzle. And it's, it's how I've managed to stay afloat all these years. Hyperfocus is when you, rather than not being able to pay attention, you can only pay attention really to this one thing that you're fixated on. And you can do it just from interest or you could do it with adrenaline. So in my life, until I had the diagnosis, I survived by these last minute frantic efforts driven by adrenaline, you know, uh, and and that's not sustainable in adult life, really, with children and so on. So uh, I was grateful to have the diagnosis. And in my case, I'm medicated and that's helpful. So anyway, that's a really long and <laughs> detailed answer. Uh, I'll be quiet and I'll let you have your turn in the conversation. Check. <laughs> well, Megan, I'm really interested in what you last said. You mentioned how you'd have these experiences fueled by adrenaline. And I guess I'm wondering... Can you give an example? What would that look like growing up? Well, I guess the tortoise and the hare is a good example. I'm lucky in that I'm naturally interested in school and was good at school in the sense, you know, I don't have other disorders that cause school to be a difficulty like dyslexia, which you often find comorbid with ADHD. And, you know, I had good teachers that saw the good in me and I had a good family environment. So I mostly escaped uh, unscathed through that. But, um, sorry, can you remind me of your question? I know I'll remember why I was saying this. <laughs> well, I'm interested in this piece around kind of being fueled by adrenaline and you were talking oh, yeah. about the tortoise okay. and the hare. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So what happens is you get a, you get a, a deadline or someone is angry with you, or there is some sort of emergency. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard about ADHD people in emergencies. You should Google this later. They are the best. We're not great at everyday tasks. Like, oh no, I got to brush my hair, make breakfast. And somehow, you know, those sort of executive functioning detailed little things cause us more stress than when there's an actual emergency because everything narrows to a pinpoint of light. The adrenaline kicks in. There's actually an effect in the brain. I don't know if it's dopamine or what it is, but, and people with ADHD, that adrenaline is the same effect on your neurotransmitters as, your medication would be or exercise might provide or certain things can stimulate your brain the same way and you become very focused so you're able to 
respond to the emergency better than neurotypical people, I would guess on average. Certainly that's the way I am. But the other thing is if you have, like say I had a, an assignment and procrastination is the other piece. If I wasn't interested all the way along and I had procrastinated knowing I had time and I'm a quick study and relying on that, which I used to, to do before, you know, you hit areas of your life where that's not gonna work, gonna work like the tortoise and the hare, the tortoise will surpass. In any event, so, but the adrenaline all my life except for a few, you know, occasions would, would, would be sufficient for me to pull an all-nighter, which would, which is why I escaped undetected and undiagnosed for so long. So all-nighter, I still wouldn't, wouldn't be my best. It would still only get, you know, a, a, a good mark for me. That's not what I, the best I was capable of, but, and that's why I guess I never took steps to uh, address it further. And also like the stereotypes about ADHD got in the way anyway, but yeah, so the adrenaline piece, even now I use it to a large degree. Uh, if I'm not interested in something, I'll set a timer and it'll create false adrenaline. I'll be like, I want to do, I want to wash these dishes before this timer goes off. <laughs> yeah. What you just said there, Megan, was really interesting about shame. And you mentioned how perhaps it led to you not being diagnosed or why did you bring that up? What does that mean? Well, I don't think I have shame per se about the diagnosis, but what it was is all my life I did well in school and it's an invisible thing. And again, the stereotypes when I was growing up, because I'm 42, I'll be 43 in a few in next week, where uh, it was the 70s, 80s, I guess, and 90s, it was sort of, it was seen as a hyperactive little boy problem. And I guess because my hyperactive, I did well in school, I suffered sometimes, but it was more socially. So I had a lot of shame around, uh, the shame didn't prevent me from getting diagnosed. I would have welcomed a diagnosis really, but I'll just say until I was diagnosed, I experienced a lot of shame around my symptoms. I still do at times because it's not something where, oh great, I know about it. Now I'll never do this again. I still interrupt every single day. You know, even if I coach myself, it might be lesser, but, and that's embarrassing because as much as I give a disclaimer to my friends and family, listen, I'm sorry, you're going to talk and tell your story. And I really want to hear it. I am going to try not to interrupt, but I'm interested and excited, you know, so it's difficult. And sometimes I trade off listening better for controlling that. Like I won't say anything, but my brain, my mouth will be shut, but my brain is going through mental exercises to prevent the outbursts. And then I didn't listen as, you know, I've tried, I have a million tricks I try to employ in order to create that balance where I'm both paying attention and being respectful and giving the appearance of paying attention. That's the other thing I used to at work in group meetings and which is, I'm in a law setting. So it's pretty buttoned up and formal used to bring my phone and play candy crush. Now to the untrained eye, I guess you didn't, you would think she that's either a disrespectful to the colleagues or she's not listening. It's distracting. But if you actually when they would say at the end of their presentation, one of my colleagues, does anyone have something to say? I would put my phone down and be like, I don't think you really need to file an affidavit. I think it already says enough. And if you do, there's something to cross-examine on. And that brings uh, Larry Duggs into the picture. Larry Duggs is a made-up name. I wouldn't, by the way. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm totally listening. Whereas if I'm not using my phone in that setting and there's all these people in the room and talking and sitting, and I'm, I'm listening. I'm focusing on keeping my face neutral, keeping stopping fidgeting, all these things that, that prevent me from really listening, engaging, and providing my legal expertise, which, you know, is valuable when 
other people can manage, you know, that I'm not conventional necessarily in the way it's always presented. Luckily, I have good colleagues that have worked with me for, I've been seeing jobs for 14 years. So I've, I've, I've demonstrated my competence and that, you know, where I need understanding about things, I've been lucky to have it and receive it. So, but yeah, no, um, it's not something you just, once you know, you're like, okay, great. It's still every day is a daily effort. You can manage your symptoms better or worse. So uh, my children both, I, I wasn't, I shouldn't, you know, it's hereditary. So it runs in families. I, all my cousins have it. My siblings, not all my siblings and cousins, but you know, many of my siblings and cousins. And, you know, I sure know firsthand that if those symptoms are not managed in the right setting, like our wasp family setting, for example, is pretty stifled up and buttoned up. It's not acceptable to hog the floor and take the attention from the group and start making a f- bunch of funny jokes because you're not interested. <laughs> mm. um. So you talked about um, this idea of ADHD symptoms coming up for you again and again and again, even though you have excellent self-awareness on them. And another piece though, that you mentioned earlier was how you sort of adapted in your social environment growing up by using some of these symptoms to actually maybe boost you socially through comedy. And so I guess my question is around how, and and I don't know if this is the right language to use, but maybe in some ways it sounds like you view some of these symptoms as weaknesses, but then in other ways you speak of them as strengths. And I guess I'm wondering if that's the case. Oh, hundred percent. Like, I don't think for number one, you can't really separate symptoms from personality. Not everything Mm. is right. Like I'm extroverted. Is that ADHD or is that extroversion? You know what I mean? But, but also I wouldn't trade my circumstances to not, you know, to not have ADHD. I think of whatever it's, everyone has their own challenges. Like personally, I think it would be so challenging to be just so boring. Like you have no fix for that. There you are. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess, I mean, yeah, I, I, for the stand-up comedy, I've been bold. I've been great. I've been able to take risks because my, I neurologically like took them without wanting to younger, I guess. And I'll say this, you said, Oh, it's helped boosted me socially. No, no, no. <laughs> That's the one area I still struggle the most with. I've never been great with the way friendships are go. And like, in terms of my close and good friends love me and accept me for who I am, but I don't do well in like groups of women, for example, where there's a lot of social rules I can't observe. That's, you know, the, the following of social cues and stuff. I also, it's hard to explain to someone in that setting. Here's a perfect example. They're all talking about where they got their hair done or where their kid is taking music or where something I'm not interested in. <laughs> and neurologically, and they're all probably drinking wine and I don't drink. And maybe my meds are wearing off. And, you know, I try my hardest to nod and smile and be like, mm-hmm. but really what ends up coming out is like me being like, you know what? And he's going to take music, but like, he's not going to Juilliard, you know, or something, <laughs> something inappropriate. Yeah, often I'll remove myself from those settings because I don't want to hurt anyone. It's never personal. It's, and it de- you know, it depends on my mood. If I can tell I'm better behaved that day, then I might stay. I don't never want to detract from someone else's thing, right? That's one of the things I've worked hard at and <laughs> with better or worse success. Mm. So, yeah, I think of this, oh, sorry, Bev, I'll just, you asked a question. I never am answering your question, I realized. The thing about um, strengths and weaknesses, these are strengths in the right context, but the whole key is identifying 
the context. That's why I started doing stand-up, right? It's appropriate to tell jokes and react off, be irreverent, whatever, and silly. And and no one's going to be like, you know, stop that. Hide your light under a bushel. Pass the ball. You know, sit down. <laughs> like, that's what you're supposed to do. So it's been gratifying that I've done well at it because, uh, yeah, otherwise, I'd still do it for fun, by the way. But that's just been a gratifying thing that it's gone well. <laughs> that's amazing. I love this idea of you can't separate the person from the diagnosis and it's important to understand context. And it sounds like you found ways to really flourish and you found ways to adapt. Yeah. I mean, essentially if a person with ADHD is given the tools to succeed and, and, and the environment that they're in recognizes their particular accommodation. And I'm going to call, I'm calling them accommodations, but in my case, for example, there's no accommodation in a legal sense. Like in a legal sense, people with ADHD are entitled to an accommodation in a work or school setting if it can be done without, without, to the point of undue hardship is the term. So, you know, to the, like, for example, if a kid with ADHD learns best sitting in the front row, well, and the t- why would a school insist on continuously putting them in the back row next to the ticking clock? Like there are some very easy fixes that solve so much of the problem. Or if the kid with ADHD needs to move and the teacher understands that, let that kid go to the water fountain three more times than the other. Who cares, really? Let them, you know, things like this. You have no idea, A, how much difference it makes to let them do those things, but then do them without sort of commenting on them and making it a weird thing. Every child actually, ADHD or no, would benefit from those sort of little tweaks in their learning environment. And to the extent it can be done, like obviously you have a classroom of 30 kids or however many kids, you can't, you know, not everyone can sit in the front row. So it's it's obviously got to be, uh, everyone's needs have to be taken into account. But like, like that's the sort of thing at my office. I need an extra proofread. I have a very good legal mind, but I make mistakes where if you don't know much about ADHD, you think, why would someone of this seniority be making this typo? Well, the ideas are so solid. Luckily, they know this is known. I send it to, you know, a paralegal, someone for a proofread. These are easy things, but I have to feel comfortable doing that and knowing I won't be judged. Mm. They have to understand the condition enough to know this isn't a reflection of some substantial problem. This is a minor fix here. And right. instead of, you know, instead of making a big deal, like, oh, I bring so much other value that that works. But it, it, again, I've, I've timidly over 14 years have brought this information out. And at the beginning of my career, I certainly wouldn't have advertised it. Like the name alone, by the way, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. As a lawyer, you don't want to say to someone, I've got an attention deficit disorder, even though my symptoms don't manifest with me not being able to pay attention to legal details in the way that someone might assume from the title. Mm. So. Sense. Yeah. All right. Megan, we've covered so much. I feel like I've learned so much. It's wonderful. (laughs) My last question for you to wrap up is, what do you wish more people knew about ADHD? I wish this goes for everyone, adults and children, like uh, groups of adults that have ADHD adults in their mix and groups of children that have ADHD children's mix would know how much people with ADHD need positive reinforcement for their, po- their good traits, because what they get most of the day is rebukes for this tip of the iceberg that po- pokes out like, the bad behavior, the calling out, they don't ever get recognition for all the underwater of this iceberg, all the stuff they're controlling. If wow. you have severe ADHD the way I do, and some of the people I know do, it's a gargantuan effort daily. And, and people don't know and they think you're rude. You know, people misunderstand and 
again, you get rebuked for things like calling out, but you never, anyway, so yeah. So I wish that uh, uh, there was more understood about the fact that this is neurological, the fact, mm. the way that, that everything worked and the fact that these ADHD kids that are surviving in an environment, a neurotypical sort of based environment, they need these positive comments as well. And that those sort of things drive ADHD kids better than negative reinforcement. Wow, that is such a good point and something I've never thought about before. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Megan. This has been such a valuable and illuminating conversation. Oh, thank you, Bev. I think you're so terrific. And I've been really uh, looking forward to our conversation. That was today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was hosted by Bev Catherine and produced by Yuri Hladio. Podcasting isn't free. Consider supporting the podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com. You'll get early access to episodes and other exclusive content. You can find us on patreon.com slash stop psychoanalyzing me. Until next time. Yeah.